Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm John Gwen Hill. This is The Weeds. And I love a deal. Most of us do. And nowadays, it's really easy to get one. Go online and you'll see deep discounts on stuff that honestly wasn't all that expensive to begin with. Point, click, and for many of us, a package could land on our doorstep within hours. The convenience of it all is intoxicating. Technology has supercharged our consumption. The thing is, none of that is an accident. And it's not without consequence either. I'm Izzy Ramirez, and I am a deputy editor at Vox's Future Perfect, which is our section that analyzes solutions to the world's biggest problems. You may not think of your clothes as a problem, but how they're made and how they're discarded actually has a huge impact. Take fast fashion, for example. I would say fast fashion is when trendy styles off of the runway or off of the street enter in stores at like an insanely fast pace. The thing is, when you are operating that fast to replicate styles, to replicate trends, you are sacrificing a lot. The majority of fast fashion is made very, very quickly, very, very cheaply with like mostly synthetic materials, and then also at the expense of workers who are incentivized to work faster to even make a living wage. And even then, living wages, they're, they're really poverty wages when we're talking about workers in Bangladesh, etc. It's just like not a great situation for like anyone other than people who want to be fashionable, but fashionable at what cost? Today on The Weeds, we all love a bargain, but does fast fashion cost more than it's worth? In some ways, this may seem cut and dry. Overconsumption isn't good for the environment or for people, so stop doing it. But there's a real tension here. In order to understand that tension, I asked Izzy what the arguments are in favor of fast fashion. This is a source of a lot of my gray hairs. Um, so <laughs> um, dear listener, I am I'm very young. I shouldn't be having gray hairs. But um, a big one is, oh, it's classist for you to say that I shouldn't buy from fast fashion brands. When I mean fast fashion, I mean like places like Shein, like Princess Polly, that kind of stuff where it's like trend chasing um, shirts that are like $3 and really should not be $3. But the argument around classism is like, okay, well, I'm poor and poor people deserve to look good. 
Therefore, I should be able to buy from Shein. And I question that a bit because the people who are who are buying from Shein at the amount where it's like negative to workers and negative to the environment are not poor people. Like that's not the problem here. When we're talking about the problem fast fashion, we're talking specifically about overconsumption, aka the people who are buying like 10, 12, 20 garments at a time for a TikTok haul. It's hot time. This is the reason why I cannot be trusted to shop at Zara. So let's do a haul. For listeners who aren't aware, like hauls are like this decade-long trend of like buying something online or in person and like not just buying one thing, buying like several things. I'm back with more cute H&M finds. So let's try them on. Next track is giving same thing, different font. It's just obviously a vest. I want to start off by showing you guys the only shoes that I got in store today. And then like filming a video to like share how excited you are about said haul and encouraging people to continue shopping. A bitch ordered some Shein stuff and it just came in. I opened it because I got excited, but then I thought, let's film. And that's the way that Shein has grown, especially on TikTok. It's so easy to like go on TikTok see someone's like 30 second haul where they're barely even talking, be like, oh, I can just click the link in their like to shop or, oh, it's already connected to TikTok shop where like my credit card information is already there and I can just get it instantly. But I think like the classism argument falls flat for me when we need to remember that like we are not the poorest people in this equation. Like there are people who are making like cents, like maybe 15 cents per garment or even less than. I think like there is a stat somewhere that it's like garment workers make three cents per garment. That's unacceptable, frankly. There's another argument people make, and that's about size inclusivity. Uh, I, I want to explore that a little bit because, you know, for people that are in bigger sizes, it can be difficult to find clothes. And when the idea of fast fashion comes up, that's an argument a lot of people make. Like, oh, I can find clothes in my size. Yeah. And to that I say, like, I totally get it. And again, I think it comes back to this idea of overconsumption, right? Like, I'm not talking about, you know, the poor person that needs a blazer for an interview. And I am not talking about the person who's like looking to find something in their size because they need a pair of pants. When I'm talking about we should buy less from fast fashion, I'm talking about people who are buying several garments. Because what that means is like, okay, like if you're spending $100 on 10 like articles of clothing, that's $100 that you could probably spend on like two things, right? And I think the thing is that Americans tend to forget that like we don't need as many clothes as we think that we do. The size of our closets has grown in the last few decades. Like it seems very normal to think that people should have these really full closets, but we don't need to buy 68 garments a year, which is the average as of 2018. 68 garments a year and most of your clothes go unworn or sitting in the back of the closet somewhere or like you donate it after you get tired of some trend. That's the problem here. Like, I don't think the problem is like fat or poor people buying clothes. So you mentioned a couple of brands as we've been having this conversation, you know, Princess Polly, Shein. What are some of the other names that people might be familiar with? And just how much are they producing? Like, what's the scale here? So you might be familiar with like the mall brands, right? Like you've probably heard the fast fashion was bad in like the 2010s with like H&M and Zara, Forever 21. And if you thought it was bad then, like 
it pales in comparison, right? Like there was a statistic from this professor, Shang Lu, who over like a 12-month period looked at how many different styles that brands were putting out. And when I mean styles, I mean like, okay, you have this sweater, you have this pair of pants, et cetera, not like number of garments. Gap had around 12,000 different styles in a year. H&M had about 25,000. Zara clocked in at about 35,000. And um, Shein had 1.3 million. And a lot of that clothing ends up in landfills. Textile waste is a problem. Throwing away clothes has an obvious impact on the environment. But Izzy explained how excess clothing can be a drain on resources long before that shirt or sweater even hits the rack. I want to start with the beginning of a garment, right? Because like when I talk about environment, your clothes come from somewhere. They come from somewhere. They're not just like miraculously woven into existence, whether it's natural. So like either like someone has to plant that cotton, cotton has to get produced and like woven into fabric. Same thing with silk. You have silkworms, goats for cashmere. And then in the case of synthetics, that's that's fossil fuels, that's oil. Your polyester, your nylon, acrylic, that's all stuff that comes from fossil fuels. So there's, you know, either you're extracting in that way or you're using like land resources or animal resources, all of which have varying levels of emissions that come from that just to get the textiles made. You talked before about how Fashion is often seen as frivolous. And, you know, I think there are reasons for that. Typically, things that women tend to be interested in get casted aside and considered frivolous. But fashion is expression. And like, you know, like a lot of people out there, I be dressing. I love to have that thing on. I know me. I'm like, okay, what do I have in my closet? Let me look it up on Pinterest and see how I can style it. Like, boom, let's go. But... I'm wondering how we think of squaring this idea of, like, we have to go out into the world, we're perceived certain ways because of the way we're dressed, but at the same time, it can be really expensive to try to be perceived the way you want to be perceived, or, you know, you are contributing to this, like, major labor and environmental and just waste problem. Like, what, I guess, how do we square those things? What do we do? So, like, the number one thing is, that, like, I really want to stress that I don't want to blame the consumer entirely. Like, the fashion industry here is at fault. Like, they need to change. We need governance to really, like, take this problem seriously. In terms of what we can do, I think the number one problem on the consumer side, besides, like, just buying way too many garments, is, like, it's it's a style problem. If you are constantly influenced by the trend cycle and you don't know what you like, you are going to keep buying things that you hate. You're going to end up with some ballet flats that you thought were cute because the Sandy Leanne girlies were out (laughs) here with their bows. And then you realize, wait, I hate this. (laughs) It's important to like put an effort into developing what you like, what's worth buying. And if you already have something similar, like ask yourself, do I really need a second version? Do I really need five black tops? Yeah. And as a person who loves a black top, I'm wearing one right now. I'll tell you, you don't need five black tops. What you need to do is laundry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you could only see the other side right now, my laundry problems. That's a subtweet to myself. (laughs) So I get it. Izzy Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. 
If you want to read more about fast fashion, make sure you check out the Buy Less Stuff series at Vox.com. You can find a link to it in our show notes. We heard Izzy say it's not all on the consumer, that we need governance here to cut down on waste. Up next, how a trade policy from the 90s got us here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're back. It's The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. 
My name is Elizabeth Klein. I am a researcher and educator about sustainability and labor rights in global supply chains. I've written two books, uh, Overdressed and The Conscious Closet, and I currently teach a class on fashion policy at Columbia University. Elizabeth is uniquely positioned to talk about the global impact of fast fashion. Now she advocates for sustainable fashion and less consumption, but it wasn't always that way. I got into researching this issue because I was a fast fashion addict in my 20s. I was in media at the time, just getting my feet wet as a young journalist. And I really just got drawn into this whole culture of buying things really cheaply and chasing trends. And I don't, I don't know, I just turned around one day and had a closet <laughs> full of hundreds of items of clothes. I was like, God, where did all of this stuff come from? How is it made? Where is it made? What is going on behind the scenes? This whole industry did not pop up overnight. When would you say that American consumerism started to be what we know it as today? I think that mass consumerism in the United States, it's a post-World War II phenomenon. But rather than start the story of fast fashion there, I would actually start it in the 1990s. There were some really important changes in our free trade agreements that made the globalization of the fashion industry possible. Prior to the 1990s, the United States apparel and textile industry it was very protected. We didn't really want competition from the so-called developing world. So we passed the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994. Another international trade agreement called the Multi-Fiber Arrangement ended in 1995 and then it was phased out in the early 2000s. NAFTA in the, in the Multi-Fiber Arrangement, they did two different things, but they had the same effect, which was that they allowed developing countries to participate in the game of producing clothing. The apparel and textile industries, historically, it's always been, if you wanna industrialize, that is the first industry you pursue. And so for that reason, the United States and EU countries for decades, maybe even since their founding, protected their apparel and textile industries with tariffs. They didn't want competition from other countries. And all of that really shifted in the 90s. NAFTA in particular removed tariffs completely for clothing produced in Mexico and Canada. So that meant a lot of apparel production could move to Mexico and it was very cheap to produce clothing in Mexico as a result. And then the multi-fiber arrangement, what it did was it actually set quotas for how much clothing developing countries could import into the United States. So there was a basically like a limit, you know, like Vietnam can only produce and import this much clothing into the United States. Bangladesh can only export this much clothing imported into the United States. That all went away starting in 1995 and then it completely was phased out by 2005. It opened the gates. It allowed, it allowed other countries who wanted to participate in fashion production to do so. And the reason why I bring up free trade deals, other than I get to actually talk about these things on the weeds, is that it changed the landscape of where clothing could be made. And suddenly developing countries, in particular across Asia, started manufacturing a lot more 
clothing really cheaply. And at the same time in the 90s, you've got, of course, the rise of the internet. So it was possible to transmit designs, um, share information about fashion much more quickly. Old Navy Holiday Hotline, looking for a hot hoodie? Here's the 411. And fashion just started to get a lot cheaper and quicker, really in the 1990s and accelerating through the early 2000s. All the hotties want hoodies, just 1950. You in the hood now, baby. It's so interesting because I think when, you know, we hear about the North American Free Trade Agreement, there's all this conversation about jobs in the U.S. And I especially think of cars, manufacturing, but it's really had this impact even beyond that, even to our clothes. Yeah. And I think that the biggest critique of NAFTA and one that I absolutely agree with is that those free trade agreements in the 1990s were created without labor and environmental protections. So that's really what's changing now um, is, you know, people are saying, yes, of course, trade is a good thing, but (laughs) trade with rules, you know, there have to be standards because NAFTA had a, a devastating impact on the American textile and apparel industry. But I think that the bigger sort of existential impact that it had was this race to the bottom in the fashion industry, where you've got all of this labor rights exploitation in the United States and globally, as well as a lot of environmental degradation. In a way, it reminds me of that really infamous scene in The Devil Wears Prada, where Miranda Priestly gives the cerulean sweater monologue. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. And it goes beyond, you know, editors at fashion magazines. It even goes to trade policy. Like, what we're wearing is impacted by all these different factors. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, the fashion industry, it's the foundational industry of capitalism. You know, it's it's the cornerstone and it it shapes foreign policy, um, you know, that Congress is, for example, fighting over the de minimis loophole right now. It's this rule that allows uh, e-commerce retailers like Shein to ship fast fashion directly to consumers without paying tariffs and duties. And this is regardless of whether or not the company has connections to forced labor. But yeah, the fashion industry, it's its one of the most globalized, if not the most globalized industries in the world. You know, I can't really think of a country that doesn't participate in it some way. You know, you've got 100 million people who work in textile and apparel manufacturing. And then that's even before you get to the retail stores and the runway. The runway shows that we think of as fashion. It's connected to everything. We have those trade policies that have really shaped the way fashion is now. But there are also a few key pieces of legislation that we need to discuss that are trying to shift the way that things are happening. One's already passed, and that's the California Garment Worker Protection Act, When was it enacted and what does that do? There's so much happening in the space of of policy in the fashion industry right now. And I think just taking a step back, if I had to say what the through line is with all of the work, because it's you've got the Garment Worker Protection Act in California, the Fabric Act in Congress, the New York Fashion Act in New York State. The EU has introduced a bunch of laws that are going to impact the fashion industry 
They're trying to create accountability at the top of the supply chain through the entire supply chain. So we have lived in a world over the last 20 years where brands and retailers could just say, I don't own my factories. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. If there's child labor in my factory, if there's forced labor in my factory, if a community's rivers are polluted by dyes that go into my clothes. I think that one of the most egregious examples of this was when the um, Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Bangladesh in 2013. Investigators said the top four floors had been built without permits and the ground beneath the structure was unstable. They concluded that the collapse was triggered by the weight and vibrations of power generators on the top floor that kicked in during a power outage. Over a thousand people lost their lives and the brands who produced them in that factory were able to say, this has nothing to do with me. So the Garment Worker Protection Act passed in 2021, went into effect in 2022. And that piece of legislation is so important. Um, just to give a little bit of backstory, California is the biggest garment producing hub in the United States. Yes, we still make clothing in the United States. Yeah, I think that would come as a surprise. <laughs> like, especially American apparel is no longer with us. Rest in peace uh, to that problematic company. That made some cute clothes. I know. I mean, I still have I still have bodysuits that I bought there in like 2010. So yeah, it was good quality, I gotta say. I mean, it's in relation to how much clothing is made in the world, it's a small percentage, but it's still, it's a pretty big industry. It's a $9 billion industry. There's 100,000 garment workers in the United States. There's garment manufacturing in California, in the South. It's still substantial. And we also still make a ton of textiles in the US. So yes, it is a very hidden industry, but it exists. In California, Garment workers have, um, for a very long time now, been underpaid, illegally underpaid, using the piece rate system. So factories were essentially, instead of paying them a minimum wage, they were paying them for every piece they sewed. And workers were putting in 70, 80 hours a week, making hundreds of garments a day, and it would never add up to the minimum wage. The average wage was less than $3 an hour before the Garment Worker Protection Act passed. That policy has two key pieces. The first is factories are not allowed anymore to pay the piece rate until the minimum wage is met. So you just, you have to pay people the minimum wage. And then the second piece, which I think is going to be, and it already is the more watershed piece, is that it says that brands and retailers must share in the responsibility with their factories for any wages and, and our laws being met. So essentially, if a factory continues to pay their workers less than the minimum wage, the brand and retailer is also on the hook alongside the factory. So it creates this chain of accountability, right? Like up the supply chain. This was a bill that no one thought we could win. I, I was involved in the coalition that organized to pass the Garment Worker Protection Act. It was also a very, very cool campaign to work on because the core pieces of the law were devised by garment workers. It was a campaign led by LA garment workers, and they were 
in the Zoom meeting, this was, you know, still during the pandemic, with the California governor when he signed the bill into law. So we have the California Garment Worker Protection Act, which has passed, but there are also a few key policies that are in the works right now. And one of them is the Fabric Act in the United States Congress, and that's been introduced by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Tell us more about the Fabric Act, because, you know, that goes beyond just state policy. That's nationwide. Yeah, so the Fabric Act is the um, successor to the California Garment Worker Protection Act. It has the same key pieces, so it eliminates piece rate pay up until the minimum wage is met. It would hold brands and retailers jointly accountable if factories underpay their workers. And then it has a third piece. So it has carrots and sticks, um, and then the carrots is this domestic manufacturing grant program. So it's also trying to incentivize more American-made clothing. So if the Fabric Act passes in Congress, all of the, the rules that now apply in California would be nationwide. It actually amend, aims to amend the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it would be, of course, like a federal rule. Do you think the Fabric Act has any chance of passing anytime soon? I mean, Congress is not known for being, you know, at its most functional right now. Bipartisanship, like, what is that? Haven't heard that name in years. And it seems like it's poised to have this really meaningful impact, but does it stand a chance? I mean, people said that we couldn't win the California bill. And a lot of what stands a chance in Congress has to do with the way coalitions organize. And I do really believe in the coalition that's behind the Fabric Act. It's got support from over, I want to say, 200 fashion brands, labor unions, AFL-CIO. And in terms of whether or not it'll get bipartisan support, I actually do think there's potential because if you look at some of the issues that have brought Republicans and Democrats together over the past couple of years, it's been around fashion. Like, again, they've come together over this de minimis loophole issue that would impact Xi'an. And then the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which basically prevents the importation of products made in the Xinjiang region of China, that's a fashion policy because that's really mostly about the cotton industry and forced labor in the cotton industry in China. That had a huge bipartisan appeal. So, you know, I actually do think that there's potential, not just for the Fabric Act, but other policies connected to fashion and international trade in fashion to bring uh, people together on both sides of the aisle. You mentioned the New York Fashion Act and I want to talk about that a little bit. Again, that one's a state law versus, you know, a national one. But that seems like it's going to be meaningful as well if it's enacted. Why is that state bill so important? It's not just a state bill. It would apply to any company that sells a significant amount of clothing in New York State. So it would apply to pretty much every large fashion company you can think of in the world. So that's why it's significant. It also has, I think, the broadest scope of any of the so-called fashion policies we're seeing around the world. And it's unique because it is just focused on the fashion industry. The Fashion Act is is really interesting because it goes the furthest on climate change. Something that most people don't realize about the fashion industry is it's got the third largest carbon footprint of any consumer industry. 
It's responsible for between 2 and 8% of all carbon emissions globally. So it has a massive, massive carbon footprint. And so one of the things the Fashion Act, the New York bill is trying to do is require companies to not only measure their carbon emissions all the way down the supply chain, but they actually would have to set targets to meet and reduce their carbon emissions. There's no, I can't, I don't think that there's a law that goes that far to regulate carbon emissions in the private sector. Um, so it's, it's pretty groundbreaking on that level. So that's what's happening stateside. But this is a global problem. What are other countries doing to combat clothing waste? That's next. This week on The Pitch, we're breaking form and introducing a new segment on our show called The Exit. You had your first exit at 18 years old, your second at 24. And then six months later, you start another company. This one's called Shipped. The company just exploded overnight. And then you realize, all right, we need more money. So you went out to Sand Hill Road. I'm not a West Coast type. I didn't have a feel for the game, but I figured it out really fast. What did you think when you threw out the number? It is very easy to get distracted and excited and thinking about what you're going to do with your millions. I ran the company out of money. I know my CFO and everybody was thinking, this is nuts. Oh, shift. Do you have any regrets about Shipped? How Bill Smith, a high school dropout from Birmingham, Alabama, started, scaled, and sold his startup for $550 million in three years. That's this week. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the weeds. I'm Jacqueline Hill. Okay, Elizabeth. We just talked about some U.S.-based policies that are in motion, but this is a global problem. In Europe, there's something called the EU due diligence laws. What are those and how are they different, especially from what we're doing here in the U.S.? Yeah, let's talk about the EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. It, in some ways, is similar in spirit to the Garment Worker Protection Act and the Fabric Act in that it's about saying, hey, if you're a company, you are, in fact, responsible for human rights and environmental impacts in your entire value chain. So you can't just say, I'm only responsible in my company headquarters. You're also responsible for what's going on in your factories, for factories and raw material producers even further down the supply chain. But the approach that they're taking is different. So the due diligence directive, it is based on this process called human rights due diligence. Human rights due diligence was first defined by an international framework called the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which was adopted in 2011. But of course, at that point, you know, it's still voluntary. It was just these lofty ideals that everyone says we're going to be working towards. But most corporations didn't really move to do anything about it until it started to become hard law. And now the EU is going to make it an EU-wide mandate, which is 
mind-boggling. So human rights due diligence, it's really like, it's basically outlining a process that describes how companies need to identify, prevent, and then remediate human rights and environmental impacts in their supply chain. So it's very like process-oriented. Like if you look at the EU corporate due diligence directive, it's really long and it lays out like what all these steps would look like. But if you think about it in practice, it means that if a company is aware of and does not do enough to, for example, prevent gender-based violence in a factory, if it doesn't do enough to identify and prevent a massive crackdown on organized labor or forced labor or massive deforestation and biodiversity loss in a community, that company will now be liable for those harms across the entire EU. It is a big, big deal. And of course, the devil is going to be in the details. It's going to pass, but it's in the proposal phase, which means the EU is still kind of negotiating the details. And I think everybody who cares about labor and environment is just praying, you know, working really hard to make sure it's as strong as possible. I think we should also talk about the EU's textile waste laws. Like, uh, what what are those? How does that factor into all of this? I think maybe it'd be helpful just to give a little bit of context. I mean, I know everybody saw, I, I think everybody saw on social media the last few years, like these textile mountains burning in the desert of Chile. And then there was, you know, before that in Ghana, there was uh, these media exposés about all of this textile waste ending up in open landfills, like washed up on the beach in Accra and Ghana. So textile waste has become a massive issue because of how much clothing we're producing and consuming. And it outrages people, you know, as it should, because the way that a lot of this used clothing is ending up in Chile and Ghana is well-meaning consumers go and donate their clothes to a thrift store, not knowing that the stuff that the thrift store can't sell enters into this global secondhand industry. And there's just so much of it that, you know, it's ending up in these open landfills and polluting people's environment. It's just really, it's horrible. The good news is there is pretty strong political appetite to do something about this in the EU, but we're also starting to see movement in the United States. One of the main things that is happening right now is in the EU, this started in France, but they're going to introduce EU-wide extended producer responsibility rules for textiles. What that is in very simple terms is it would require the companies that manufacture and produce apparel to pay into a nationwide system to handle the recycling and collection of used clothes. So they're no longer going into the landfills. And in California, just earlier this year, they introduced the first EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility Law for Textiles in the United States. It got pulled because the industry, quote unquote, wants to iron out the details before it's introduced again. But still, that means EPR for textiles is happening in the U.S. It's just a matter of time and like what it's going to look like. What's on your policy wish list? If you could wave a magic wand 
and fix the industry, what would you do? So the first thing is that we do need, I think, more carrots. There's a lot of sticks right now. And I would like to see the U.S. create more incentives for sustainable and ethical production. You and I had a very lengthy debate about money and sustainability. And the reason is because the onus is on the consumer right now to support more sustainable companies. But the government could, for example, provide tariff relief to companies that source sustainable materials, that source lower carbon materials. They could even provide lower tariffs on living wage products. And that, believe it or not, is part of the new version of NAFTA. It only applies to auto parts. Mm. Yeah, if it's already in a free trade agreement in one industry, why could it not be applied to fashion? Um, And that would make the more sustainable item, the more ethical item, more affordable for the consumer. So it's a win-win. The other thing I would love to see is the government mandate. We have to talk about money. Sustainability is a cost. Paying living wages is a cost. I think that the government could do a lot more to require companies to contribute financially to social responsibility. And if that sounds like completely pie in the sky, India actually has something that I think is called the Corporation Act or something like that, where it requires companies, I love this idea so much, to pay 2% of their annual net profits to corporate social responsibility. So they actually mandate investments into these policies. So that would make it so that doing good is not just a nice to have, but everybody has to pay into it. My third item on my policy wish list is that I really want the U.S. government to do more about greenwashing and to do more to create standardized, comparable data about what we're buying. Greenwashing is when companies overstate the sustainability credentials of their products and their marketing. They either overstate what they're doing or they actually are actively misleading consumers. I really do think consumers care but they are so confused right now by the information that is out there that they don't know how to direct their spending power. The EU, again, is doing some good stuff on greenwashing, but like the United States, like we're one of the biggest markets for clothing in the world. You know, we love market-based solutions. Targeting greenwashing is a, you know, is a low-hanging fruit. And I just, I, I would like to see the government do more to make sure that the information available to consumers is accurate and um, something that we can use to more easily vote with our dollars. Elizabeth Klein, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. That's all for us today. To read more from Vox's Buy Less Stuff series, just click the link in our show notes. Thank you to Izzy Ramirez and Elizabeth Klein for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.